0: So turn there if you would. And uh, as we are doing that, we will dismiss young people for time in the word. They're welcome to go to the upper room as Brother Duncan works with them today. And Mrs. Duncan. All right. As they are heading that way, you're getting to, hopefully by now, to Ephesians chapter 2 as we get to continue in this study. This past week, a very tragic event happened in Miami. You probably heard about it on the news about that uh, uh, building that collapsed and the lives that were lost. And you know uh, what happens when there's a tragic event like that? You always the uh, the vultures always come in. News reporters always come in and they want to get the the biggest scoop. You know, the biggest story. And it's not unusual, is it, to hear people talk about their experience and talk about what happened? Um, and many times they'll relate something like well I'm just glad to be alive and by the way rightfully so uh, all the things that were important a, d- a day before for anyone that was in that kind condom- of day is no longer important you know you don't see someone that's uh, that that their you know their home was totally lost or the, the place they were living the place they were staying is totally lost who survived or who was pulled out of the rubble say oh my credit cards are in there It's not no longer important anymore. You know, or or man, I'm gonna have to get my my life all back together. They'll just say, I'm so glad I'm alive. The Bible tells us, and the Bible talks in Ephesians chapter two about a reason why Christians should be glad they're alive. Sometimes we can get so focused in our lives and what's going on and everything else that we forget what God has done for us. And today in Ephesians chapter 2, God takes the time to remind us that, in a sense, we were in a crumbling building and God pulled us out of the rubble. And he has given us, we have the privilege this morning of saying, I'm just glad to be alive because of what Jesus Christ has done. So follow along as I read and we're reminded of that great truth where he says, and you have He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein, in time past, he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had we, we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Today, we have the privilege of reveling in the grace of God. God pulled us out of a burning, crumbling building and gave us life. And may we rejoice in that fact. Let's pray. Father, Please open our eyes to behold the wonderful truth in this passage. Help us to see it as you intended for us to see it, that those who know Christ as Savior should rejoice today in what God has done. And for those that do not know you, may they understand the truths of this passage. May they come to the realization that you provided a way that they might be saved from wrath, from judgment. And may they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray and ask these things in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Three things I want you to see from the Word of God. Very simply from Ephesians chapter 2. And what God does at the beginning of this chapter is share with us the serious condition all men are in. The serious condition you were in. And I say you were in because if you understand this passage, it's written to those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's written to those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Many times when I've heard Ephesians 2 preached, it's preached to lost people. It's preached as if, hey, uh, lost people need to understand the truth here. Well, uh, the fact is lost people do need to understand the truth here. And if they do, they can come to faith in Christ. But Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to believers, and he says, Believers, this is what you were. This is the situation you were in. This is the building you were in, okay? This was the circumstances in which you found yourself at one time in your life, and it ain't that way any longer. And that's the encouragement of this message today. That's the encouragement of this passage, to remind believers what God has done and what he does to begin that and to share, if you would, to drive home The wonderful truth and the truth that should rejoice your heart today if you're saved is that you were in a very serious state. Your condition was absolutely positively horrendous. I say, Dad, that doesn't sound real good. I know it doesn't, but we aren't that way any longer, according to the passage. He says, And you hath he quickened. He made you alive. It's good to be alive today, isn't it? Uh, Are you alive today? Let's try that again. It's good to be alive today, isn't it? All right. Now, if you're in Christ, you're doubly alive. Okay? Physically alive and spiritually alive because of what Christ did. But you have to understand something. God did a marvelous work for you. And that's what these verses tell us. And you hath he quickened. He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Think about that. You were dead in sin. You know, people tell us that the problem with our world today is that humanity is out of harmony with Mother Earth. Or they'll tell you that man is just out of harmony with man. And we just need to get in tune with Mother Earth. And we need to, to just accept people as they are. And if we would just do that, then this world would be a wonderful place. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us this world is a bad place because men are sinners, and because of men have sinned, they are dead in trespasses and sins. That all men are out of touch, not with Mother Earth, but they're out of touch with God because all men are sinners. And that's what he brings out at the beginning of this passage. He said, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Do you know that Paul wrote to the church at uh, at Coloss, and he said in uh, chapter 2 and verse 13, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So he wrote to at least two different churches. Actually, you could probably find more. And he said basically the same thing. Look, this is what you were. You were dead in trespasses and in sins. You were in a situation that was hopeless. You were in a building that you couldn't get out of. You were in a situation, the the building had already crumbled and, and you're, you were inside it. You were entombed and there was no way out unless the savior came. And that is the picture God wants you to have this morning about what he saved you from. A couple of things he shares with us here. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Let me, let me share with you what those words mean. First, trespasses. It means to deviate from truth. If you were to take the, and understand the word literally, it means to sideslip. Now, there's actually two ways you can understand this word and two ways it can be used. Some people sideslip, they, they they make a slip, they, and we call it an error. They make a mistake. I mean, you might be driving down a road and come to a place where you've got to get to it. You're trying to get to a certain place, and uh, you're driving down a road, and you don't see a street sign, or maybe the street sign has fallen down, or maybe it's covered with... with uh, with bushes or something to that affect, and you're not able to see it and so you make an error and you turn the wrong way and you don't get to the location you needed to be at a certain time or whatever. Now sometimes that happens and this word can actually mean that. But the context teaches us how we're supposed to understand the word and when it's talking about a side slip here in this passage, it's not talking about someone who just went down the road and they made a little mistake. When this word is used in this passage, because he tells us that we're dead in trespasses and sins, he wants us to know that this has been a willing choice. See, men willingly are sinners. Men have chosen to be sinners. It started back with Adam, and ever since, all men have a sin nature. All men are born as sinners, and all men, as a result, have sideslipped. And it's not just an error. By the way... Our world is good at calling everything just an error. It's a problem. It's an illness. It's a sickness. But God calls it sin. He calls it transgression. He says, hey, look, everyone has side slipped. Everyone. Now, there's certain people in this passage that have been saved from that. There's certain people whose transgressions have been cared for. But the truth of the matter is that's the state in which all men are in in this world that aren't saved and all men were in who are even saved today at one time. We were transgressors. We had signs that by choice we had making the made the choice. It's like a guy who says, "Yeah, I'm supposed to be here, but but if I turn this way, I'll miss my appointment and I really didn't want to go there anyway." Maybe you're going to the dentist or something to that effect, you know? So I don't want to go there today, so I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go the other way. And God says all men have will willfully transgressed. We are transgressors by nature, and we're dead in trespasses. And God said we were also dead in sins. Now, that word means to miss the mark. And, I, you know, it, it can be explained so many different ways, so simply. Um, imagine that you're a long jumper, and the Olympics are coming up, right? Well, if they even have Olympics and if, if they even have people in the stands, they'll probably pipe in voices or something like that. It's crazy stuff they're doing today, isn't it? Alright, well anyway, we, we, we'll not get off on that subject. But, uh, let's say you're, 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 a, a, a long jumper and this is, this is your area of expertise. So, uh, in, in this, uh, in this competition, your goal is to jump and, um, and it's to jump the longest of anyone, right? So, the guy that comes right before you jumps 25 feet. No one could even do that, all right? Jumps 25 feet. The building is about 30 feet here. I'm not even going to try that, all right? So, they leave at the place they're supposed to leave. They go in the air all this way, about 25 feet, and they land right here. Now, this is then the mark that is set for everyone else that jumps. Is not that not true? Now, I know they have second and third place, but if you're in the Olympics... You want gold. You don't want silver. You don't want bronze. You want gold, right? Okay, so then 25 feet is the mark, right? I mean, that's the, the, one, one of the competitors, the guy right before you jumped 25 feet. You've never done that in your entire life. <laughs> if it was if it was me, if three feet, we'd be good, you know. And so, so you go and you jump and you jump 24 feet, 11 and three quarter inches. Best jump you've ever had in your life! Do You get the gold. No, nope, you missed the mark. Mark was 25 feet. No one's going to get the gold that jumps less than 25 feet. But God says that all of us have jumped less than 25 feet when it comes to salvation. We've all missed the mark. Mark actually would be the holiness of God, and no one is there. No one ever measures up to a holy God. Our God is sinless. And if anyone ever would hope to be in heaven someday, they have to be sinless. That's a real problem because we've all missed the mark. And and none of us have even come 24 feet uh, at three-quarters inches either, Quite frankly none of us have even come close. We were dead in sin. We had all missed the mark and that's the description Paul uses as he starts out this passage to remind us how amazing grace is. Because we were in a place that we couldn't get out of. We had made willfully. Chosen to go the wrong way many times in life, we had missed the mark of God's holiness that we could never measure up to, and no man can, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. In fact, any any deeds that anyone could do would never cause them to measure up to a holy God, and so so we all stood as, and we all didn't say we were dead in trespasses and sins, like a dead man. Who could do nothing and could respond in no way? In fact, look if you went in verse two, wherein in time past ye walked. And again, he uses this language: in the past, ye walked in the way of the world. The world has a certain way they walk, and I'm not talking about you know, the one. Everyone has certain ways they walk. You know that you, you can sometimes tell who someone is by the way that they walk. Say, Pastor, do you walk? Do you walk in a certain way? Yeah, I do. I probably a little bit like my dad. I suspect, you know. But everyone has a way that you walk. Well, God says that there is a way you walked as far as your life is concerned. Someone described it like this. You walked in conformity with the customs and manners of this world at large. Well, what are the customs and manners of this world? I, we can mention a couple. We could probably spend a lot of time here. We won't. But you one of the manners and customs of our world is to live for self. Do what your heart tells you to do. Do what, what feels good to you. As long as you're not hurting anyone, let's just do what feels good to you because what your heart tells you is the best way to live. And by the way, that is the way of the world. Do you know the way of the world has has religious practices? There are a lot of them. It, they they do what they the way of the world is to try to appease a god, whatever god that may be. To some, it may be Buddha. To others, it may be, you know, whatever God that they serve. Their goal is to make their God happy. And so they do all sorts of things in religion. They do all sorts of works in order to make their God happy. That's the way of the world. There's a different way for a believer in Jesus Christ. But that's what Paul describes as all those. Who are saved? At one time, you walked according to the course of the world. You tried to win God's favor by the way that you live. You you tried to do maybe good things. You try, or at at times you lived for self. You probably did one of those two things at some time. And do you know what God saw all those things as? Uh, he references this truth in the book of Isaiah. He says he saw them as filthy rags. Because anything that a man could ever do in his life, according to the, walking according to the course of the world, will never please a holy God who hates sin. Not only did you walk according to the way of the world, but I, I, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you were following the devil. People joke about that today, but it is no joke. There is a real devil. And he talks about it in verse 2. He says, you walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? In the Bible, he is he is Satan. He's talked about as Satan. He is the the fallen one, an angel who fell and who is being judged by God. But right now, he is the prince of the power of the air. Jesus told religious people in his day. We referenced this just last week when we learned about what God did for us. You remember that? In the message, one of the things we referenced is that Jesus said, Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. They were Jews. They were religious Jews. They were people who did all sorts of good religious deeds, but they were not part of the family of God because there's only one way to be made part of the family of God. And everyone in this world is born uh, into, into, if you would, a wrong family. Not the family of God, but they are part of the family of the devil. You are of your father, the devil. You live according to the prince of the power of the air. He's one of the people that they follow, even religious people of their father, the devil. You say, why is there so much evil in this world? Why doesn't God just stop the evil in this world? Because God has given men a free will. He's given men the ability to choose. And there is a prince in this world called Satan who has duped and blinded the eyes of men so that they follow his ways and do his deeds. And that is the way God says you were before you were saved. And he says in verse 2 that you worked according to the spirit that now worketh among the children of disobedience. Right now that's going on in this world. Yes, there are people. And it's become more evident, is it not? This whole month is dedicated toward people, unfortunately, who have chosen to walk according to their father. It's called pride month there's nothing to be proud about. It's disgusting. It's vile. And this world walks that way. And the truth is all Christians were that way and walked that way, whether you participated in that deed or some other wicked, sinful deed. And God says, because of that, look in verse three, he says, you were at the end of verse three, by nature, oh, among whom we also had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other words, you, you did what felt good. There we go again. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even other, as others. Take a moment, turn to the book of John chapter 3, would you? Just, just a moment, if you would. I want you to see it. Because a lot of people don't understand this truth. In John chapter 3, Jesus talked about um, with Nicodemus the wonderful truth that, that God loves the world. Isn't that a wonderful truth? In, in, uh, starting in verse 15, he talks about whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, verse 14. And then the well-known verses for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die? The reason why is because men are perishing. Because men are under condemnation because they're sinners. Because they deserve the wrath of Almighty God. In fact, not only do they deserve the wrath of Almighty God, but if you look at at verse uh, 7, I'm sorry, not verse 17, uh, verse 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not, what does God say? What are the next few words? He's condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, which tells us there's only one way to be saved. That's through the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the way, the only way. But if you look, you say, well, wait a second, that doesn't really make it clear. Well, then look, if you would, at verse 36. Because in John 3:36, It is made very painfully clear. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son of God shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Look, right this very moment, here's the truth that all Christians need to understand. This is what you were. And by the way, this is what everyone you know who's outside of the family of God is right now. They are under the wrath of God. This very moment they are under the wrath of God. There's only one thing that's keeping them from facing it for all eternity in a place called hell. And that is the mercy and grace of God that's keeping them alive. Jonathan Edwards, years ago, was used in New England to bring a great revival amongst uh, a, a people that just needed reviving. And he preached a message. You know the message? It's well known. It's often talked about, and it's used many times in references and about uh, about revivals and revival work. He preached the message "sinners in the hands of an angry God," and if you were to read that sermon, it, it is it is terrifying. Honestly, it is terrifying. At least the picture that he gives, because he describes a person as dangling over the pit of eternal. The eternal fires of hell. And there is just one single thread that holds a person from falling into the abyss for all eternity. And that is the picture that God gives us about our own condition before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the condition of everyone in this world. They are under the wrath of Almighty God facing eternal judgment. That's hellfire preaching in its Bible. And Christians need to remember what we were. And we need to be reminded that we were by nature the children of wrath. Facing eternal judgment and just a string keeping us from falling headlong into the the pit of an eternal lake of fire. And then comes verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. But... God, who is rich in mercy. And so we have a change from your situation, your condition, uh, your very serious condition, to God's marvelous compassion. Look, if you would, again at verse 4. But God. Who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. I mean, you just can't get more excited than he is as he begins in verse 4. Because there's just a total change now. I mean, it is dismal. You're in trespasses. You're in sins. You walked according to the course of this world. You're of, the, of your father and the devil. The lesson, you, you just followed your own lust. You lived your own way. You did your own thing. And you were dangling over the pit of hell. And the only thing that spared you was the fact that you were still breathing. And then God did something. God. Because he is a God of mercy. And the word mercy means, come on, every young person in this room should remember kindness and anyone who was in vacation Bible time. That God showed kindness to people who were totally undeserving and facing his wrath. God's marvelous compassion. God is rich in mercy. It means abounding, exceeding kindness to those who deserved Punish, uh, punishment. He is abundant, has an abundant measure of mercy. I, if we were to describe it in terms of money, he is a multi-trillionaire, if there's such a word, as far as mercy is concerned. And he's got it all in the bank and he's ready to distribute it to anyone who is willing to call upon his name and believe in his son. And he says, I've got this mercy, I'm ready. You're dangling over the pit of hell, and if you will look to me in faith and say, I believe. I will extend, I will I'll write a check of mercy and send it your way. And that's what God did. He is rich. He is abundantly rich in mercy so that he's got so much that it will never be exhausted. And anyone else who realizes that they are dangling over the pit of hell and in, under facing God's wrath and turns to Jesus Christ, anyone in this world, he will save them because he has abundant mercy. Isn't that good news? Hey, listen, I got a message to tell people. The, the message doesn't start real well in the first three verses, but it gets a lot better starting in verse four because God made all the difference. And God is a God who is rich in mercy. I read about an old Jewish legend just this past week. It describes what happened when God created man. And obviously it's a, it's a legend. It's a, it's, you know, just a story. Obviously not true, but the legend says God took counsel of the angels that stood about his throne, which he didn't, but first angel res- what, that responded was the angel of justice. And God said, I, I'm, I'm going to create the world. And the angel of justice said, create him not, for he, if you he do, he will commit all kinds of wickedness against his fellow man. He will be hard and cruel and dishonest and unrighteous, which is true. The next angel, the angel of truth, said, Create him not, God, for he will be false and deceitful to his brother and even to thee. But it didn't end there. The angel of holiness had a word to say. He stood and said, create him not, God. He will follow that which is impure in your sight and dishonor you to your face. And there was a pause. But finally, the angel of mercy stepped forward and he pleaded with the father saying, Create him, most holy one, for when he sins and turns from the path of right and truth and holiness, which he will, I will take him tenderly by the hand, speak loving words to him, and lead him back to you. God has great mercy that he extended to everyone who's a believer in this room today. Those who aren't. Or facing his wrath, not only did he show rich mercy but he had great love do you do you see Paul just couldn't i I see this guy writing and it's like I just can't write oh God showed mercy, God showed love okay good he he's he's obviously caught up in this and if you haven't noticed I'm trying to show you that enthusiasm all right? And so he doesn't want you to just see a God of mercy. He wants you to see, man, a God of mercy. And he doesn't want you to see, oh, a God of love. He wants you to see a God of love. It took a God of great love, rich mercy, and great love was what it took to save you from your lost, helpless condition because a righteous, holy God demanded punishment for your sin. And he hates your sin. And yet, he loved you. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That says it all. Who would be willing to pay the price for sin? It took the shedding of blood. Who, would it, who could have possibly taken some, someone who had great love? Who would do that for an enemy? except someone who had great love. And so, verse 4 gives us light in the darkness, gives us hope, gives us a picture of dismal condition, bright light. But God, who is rich in mercy, who had great love, who also has exceeding grace, that's what he begins to focus on, starting in verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. And then that last phrase, say it with me. By grace, ye are saved. Three different times he makes reference to grace in verses 5 through 8. He, it took grace to give you life. Uh, first, we see in verse 5, the need of grace. He says, even when we were dead in sins, and he wants to drive home that thought again. I mean, it's like he was in the pit. Verse 4 takes us out of the pit. Verse 5 puts us back in and says, This is what you were, but God. So remember it again, don't lose sight of that. And God is gracious by grace you're saved, so that he extended it. He was willing, he made the choice. This isn't something that, that you deserve. It's not something you earned. By the way, anyone that talks about someone doing something to win salvation just tramples this entire passage. Because this passage says, you were no good, but God is. And without him, you had no hope. But with him, you have life. And that took grace, the need of grace in verse 5. In verse 7, it has a picture of a God that has a superabundance of grace. Look, if you would, the measure of the grace that's available, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. He says, look, because of Jesus Christ, I am going to give you eternal life. I mean, look. Not only were you dangling over the pit of hell, and this, just the this thin thread kept you, and not only did I pull you out of that, and I said, "John, solid ground, and I've given you eternal life, but I give you abundant life now. I have given you abundant grace through Jesus Christ. Man, understand that truth. Get a grasp of that this morning. Let it just sink into your heart and life, and allow it to make the change and difference that it should in your life. It took a God who was exceeding gracious. So verse 5 talks about the need of grace. Verse 7 about the measure of grace that's available. And verse 8 is about the delivery of grace that was extended. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It took a God who is exceeding gracious to give you life. Verse 5. To give you life. Um, I... I've told you during college days about working uh, my my school bill off by working a job off campus uh, in construction work. You know, construction workers aren't usually known to be the most decent, wonderful, pleasant type people. Um, And quite frankly, the ones that I had to, I worked with, I had to work with, yes, I worked with, were not all that pleasant and and things. Um, And here, they were a bunch of young guys. And they basically lived for the weekends. Um that that was their life they endured Monday through Friday at work, and then on Friday, as soon as they got their check, they ran to the bank, cashed it, and basically spend most all of it partying through the whole weekend that just that was their life and they would come in on Monday morning and they'd have a hangover from all, all morning generally um I, I, I was pretty much the one that worked Monday mornings, and they sat in their car and told me to be quiet. So that was kind of the way things were. That was just the truth. And you know what was really funny to me is that that's what they thought was life. In fact, they they used to make fun of me because I didn't do any of those things. I didn't party all, all weekend. I wasn't living for the weekend um, because God had given me a purpose. God gave me a reason to live, and it wasn't and God gave me life, quite frankly. And there was a term that they used a couple different times in conversation. Well, you need to just live it up a little bit. And and I thought about that many times. Live it up, really. I, I saw him on Mondays, and I said, live it up. That's living it up. I said, that's living it up. Man, I don't want it. See, I I didn't need those things to live because God gave me life, real life. And quite frankly, abundant life that they knew nothing about. And um, it was kind of sad to see a people who thought they were really living, who in reality didn't know what it was about at all. God says in verse 5, even when we are dead in sins, he's quickened us together with Christ. He's given us a life with Christ. What, what an amazing thing. A Christian has life. And you know what's really sad? And, and this needs to be mentioned because this is the focus. This is the whole idea of this passage. It's to help us know what God has done for us. It, it's sad that Christians long to go back. Because what God pictures is that you had nothing good before you were saved. Nothing. You were just dangling over the pit of hell existing. And isn't it sad that Satan has duped so many Christians to think, boy, I'm really missing out. This passage reminds you, God did something wonderful when he took you out of that. When he saved you from it. Don't long to go back to it. Rejoice in God's grace. And live as one who's been given real life. He put us in heavenly places. Verse 6. This is an amazing truth, and I I don't even know if I can explain it. He raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, from hell to heaven. That's what God provided in Jesus Christ. The moment someone is saved, a sinner who is under wrath, who has a sentence of death, that, that sentence of death is removed, and he is placed in heaven so that I am there already, if you would. That's the picture he gives us. And that is a wonderful truth. It, it teaches eternal security that sadly a lot of people in Christianity, supposedly in Christianity, laugh at and mock. But the idea of verse six is eternal security. I'm already in heaven. God has me in heaven already as far as my position, as far as, as far as how he sees me. That's grace. And my salvation is just as assured that I will be in heaven someday as the fact that Jesus is in heaven right now. What an amazing truth. And not only did he put me in heavenly places, but he makes me and makes you a picture of the grace of God. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So you got trophies from uh, your high school years. You got those little things, you know, you have up. You got your little trophy room, right? You got your little trophy shelf, and and you have all these things. So people can see the wonderful work that you've done, you know, in your past. Ours are all in boxes. You know, and like every 10 years, we open it up and say, oh, yeah, you remember high school? Okay. Um, you know, you you, but trophies are it's a picture of everyone else, right? What you have accomplished. Vacation Bible time. Those trophies you live for. Those trophies, right, kids. But they're all they're all things that that perish. But you know what God pictures in verse seven? This it was kind of a, a sorry illustration of it. But God pictures Christians as trophies of His grace. So that someday, when When we are in heaven, um, heaven will be filled with God's trophies. They will all be trophies of his grace. And every, every Christian in this room, as you stand in heaven, will stand as a testament and a picture. Not that what you did and how great you are and how wonderful you are that God would save you. Which is what is preached in all our churches today but it will all be a testament to the fact that there is a God of grace who saved you from the pit of hell and gave you eternal life. You will be part of God's trophy room in heaven because it's nothing you've done. It's what he did, and that is grace. When someone has something he's proud of, he displays it, and God's going to d- display us for all eternity as trophies of his grace. So we come then in verses 8 and 9 to God's wonderful conclusion. Because this is all past. Okay? These things are, are just talking about what, what you used to be and what God did. In verses 8 and 9 tell you how you got it. It's God's wonderful conclusion. And here's the conclusion. Man is saved by grace. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Not through works. Not through baptism. Not through being a good person. Not through doing good deeds. Not by being a member of Spring Meadow Baptist Church. Not by being a member of any other church. Not by trying to live a good life and turn over a new leaf. No, for by grace are ye saved. Through faith. You see, it can't just be faith. That's all it is. And if it's anything more, you don't have salvation. It's belief in what God said about your state. About the fact that God sent his son and that he died on the cross, was buried and rose again the third day. It's faith. It's believing. That God's Son bore your sin when he died on the cross, was buried, and rose again, and that he offers eternal life as a free gift if you receive it. For by grace are you saved through faith, no other means. And when when a church gets up and says, Okay, you've been saved, but now you need to be baptized, because if you're not baptized, you won't make it to heaven, because baptism washes away sins. They're liars. You're saved by faith. Faith alone, nothing more, nothing less. For by grace are you saved through faith. If I'm counting in anything else to get me to heaven, won't get me there. Because you can only be saved by faith. And faith is not a work. Otherwise, work is no more work. Say, boy, that's confusing. Well, I know, because in Romans chapter 4, God uses kind of that, some some language to go back and forth to explain very simply how Abraham was saved and how everyone else is saved. And he explains that faith is not a work. There is no work you can do. In fact, he says in verse 9, what? It's not of works. Do Do you know why? If salvation came by works, you know what would happen when we got in heaven? We wouldn't be a trophy of God's grace. We'd be talking about how we got here. We would. I'd be going to Brother Deals and say, Man, I got here, Brother Deals, because I was a good pastor. Uh-huh. Look at me. And, and he would say, Ha! You won't believe I did far better than that. And we would all boast. The reason why Believers are a trophy to God's graces because they didn't do nothing. God did everything. All I did was believe. I believed when I was seven, and God gave me eternal life. I'm nothing special. It's God. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Grace. That he extends. Grace is, don't get confused in this, Just the supernatural enabling of God on undeserving people. To enable them to do something they couldn't do in their own power. That's what grace is. So, when someone is saved by grace, God supernaturally enables someone when they believe. Someone that's undeserving to become part of the family of God that they could not do on their own. That's why it's by faith. Because if it was through any other means, if you got it by being baptized, if you got it by being a good church member, if you got it by living a certain life or doing certain things after you trust in Christ, if you get it by that, then you would boast. And you can't boast. There's just no reason to boast because it's by faith. So, so look, Christian this morning. The whole purpose of this passage is not for you to be able to teach other people how to be saved, although you can teach them how to be saved for Ephesians chapter 2, because it talks about what happened to you. It's to remind you, this is what God did for you. And is it any wonder he ends this section by saying, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Is it any wonder that God would say, hey look, This is what I've done for you. You're my workmanship. You're my creation. This is what I've done. So I have saved you now and I I am calling you to good works. And that's what a Christian should do. Not to keep it, not to get it, because you can't. It's by faith provided through the grace of God. And that's what he desires for me now that I'm a believer. And there's no reason he shouldn't get it. My life should just marvel that God would show grace like that. On someone who is so undeserving and who did nothing for it. Accept sin against God and grieve him. But he did that for me. And he did that for you. And God's wonderful conclusion is man can be saved by grace. Through faith. And his purpose in all of it is so that I might be his workmanship now. A trophy of his grace someday in heaven and his workmanship now. That just shows to a world the difference God can make in a life that is saved by grace. Do you know you're part of the family of God? Do you know that you're saved? I'm not asking, I'm, I'm, I wanna be very clear. I'm not asking if you're a member of a church, if you if you go to church regularly, because that won't get you saved. I'm not asking if you've been baptized because baptism won't save you, it won't do anything to get you to heaven. I'm not asking if you've taken, taken communion or done anything else that some churches teach are sacraments and they bring grace somehow because nothing brings grace. God is the giver of grace. He's the one who provides grace. And it comes only when someone understands I can't do anything God has already done everything, and I'm going to believe what he's done, and I'm going to trust him and call upon his name. Have you done that? Are you part of the family of God? Because God has extended you grace because you trusted Jesus Christ.